Um, so today's the last of our Advent series, uh, sermon series. And uh, the first week, we essentially talked about how Advent means. You guys remember what Advent means? Expect. Arrival, yes, arrival. <laughs> Coming, expecting, that's good too, right? And uh, how this season is essentially a season where we're waiting, uh, for the Jews, they were waiting for the Messiah to come. And for us, we are waiting for the second coming of Christ to fulfill all of our deepest needs and longings. And the first week, we talked about how the coming of Christ was the advent of justice. He came to right the wrongs of this world, and that process has begun through Christ and his ministry. Uh, second week, we talked about how uh, it was the advent of truth, how through Christ, he has made God known. If you want to know what God is like, who he is, look at Christ. He is the uh, perfect representation and the substance of who God is. Now today, we're going to just do a very short sermon, uh, meditating on the central truth of Christmas. And the one thing, there's so much that we can unpack here, but I want to just focus in one thing, which is that Christmas was the advent of grace, specifically grace for the lonely. Now, uh, I was sharing this story with the men's college life group uh, this week over some Korean fried chicken on Tuesday, and uh, I, shared, I think I shared this story with a lot of you guys. You know, as you get older, one of the signs you're getting older is you share the same story, but you think it was the first time, right? And that's already starting with me. So I might have shared this with you. I probably did, but you get to listen to it again. Um, but when I was first pursuing my wife, Jessie, um, I specifically remember uh, this one um, day we were chatting on AIM. Do you guys, do you guys hear AIM? I know a lot of you guys did like Messenger, right? But you know, us in the States, we did AOL. We had screen names. Mine was Andrew.com. I know, not very uh, clever. But um, we were chatting, and then we decided to get breakfast together. And I remember uh, it was uh, a Denny's, this diner by the beach. And at the time, she had no idea how I felt about her. Uh, but... I think she was a bit confused about how much time we were spending talking and chatting and hanging out and all these things. And halfway through the meal, she pauses and she says, so what are your intentions with me? And I was like, I was so taken aback by that question because usually, I don't know, usually girls are not so blunt with, uh, with those type of questions. And um, I knew at that moment she was not playing games, right? So after stalling for a few hours, uh, I told her, (laughs) don't ask me how I did that, okay? Uh, I told her that I really liked her and that I envisioned myself getting married to her. Yeah, that was her response too. (laughs) So she was taken aback because no guy has ever been so blunt with her. Just a backstory so it doesn't sound creepy. I knew her since I was like 11. Yeah, anyways. there was background to it, okay? So I'm like, why don't you take some time, pray about it, you know, talk to your mentors and get back to me with an answer. And so I'm thinking she'll get back to me maybe like, you know, after a few days, a few weeks, maybe a month. She didn't give me an answer for 10 months, okay? And as, <laughs> as, as many guys know, waiting is not easy. Uh, There's this anxiety and there's this need to analyze everything. I remember every time I would uh, read her text, I would analyze to see if there was any clues to whether she liked me or not, right? Like, is that happy face just for me? Or is that for other people as well? What's going on here? And especially, it was the worst when you would send a text, but she didn't respond for a long time. 
and then you would analyze the text you just sent to make sure you didn't say anything stupid, right? And up until that 10-month mark where she said yes, you are on edge looking toward the day that she finally, hopefully, delivers some good news. And it's just really hard to wait. And I'm sure many of you can attest to that in different ways. Whether you're waiting for a decision, uh, for someone to come back home, or for an important day to finally arrive. Everyone knows that waiting is, not, is never easy, especially when it's something important for you. Now, silly example, but let's just increase the importance of the situation exponentially, because in many ways in the story of the shepherds, waiting was what the entire nation of Israel had been doing. Uh, for the past 500 years in this story, the national climate of Israel was one of waiting. If you read through the Old Testament, their meals, their festivals, they were all different and creative ways of you waiting and yearning for God to finally fulfill his promises that were made through the prophets in the Old Testament. And what were they exactly waiting for? Uh, I mentioned it in my first Advent sermon, but they were waiting for a king, specifically a king from the line of David who would bring salvation, a king who would establish justice and peace where the people of God would no longer suffer from the evil of this world. And in this story, all that waiting has finally come to an end because the announcement that's made by the angels is that the long-awaited king is finally here. Okay, this is what the angel says. Fear not, for behold, I bring you good news of great joy that would be for all the people. For unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior who is Christ the Lord. You know, I hope you grasp the magnitude of what's happening here. They weren't waiting like a few weeks, a few months, or even a few years. But this is the culmination of people waiting for generation after generation through seasons of suffering and pain, having their land taken away, having their temple destroyed, finally having their hopes realized in the birth of this child named Jesus. And here's what I want you to notice this morning. Notice who the angel of the Lord is announcing this news to. You see, up to this point in Luke's account, only those within the family of Mary have heard the news about Jesus. And, you know, this makes sense because that's the correct order of how important news travels. Whenever there's important news, it goes from what? Those closest to the uh, person that the news is about, and then it flows outward in the order of relevance. And so you would think after the family of Jesus gets the news, God would send his angels to inform the religious elites, the pastors of the day, people like me, right? Because this is spiritual news, spiritual and political news of the utmost significance for the people of Israel. If anybody needs to know, it should be the Pharisees and the priests. It should be those who can actually do something and respond about the arrival of the king that they've been waiting for. But God seems to do the exact opposite. He sends his angels to proclaim the news to some unsuspecting shepherds who are, uh, who are out in the field at night. I mean, I think we need to really think about this. We kind of skim over this part of the story. I'm sure this is something that you guys have learned as, as you're growing up in Sunday school. But this tells us something about the nature of this good news about who God is and what he's really up to in the story of Christmas. You see, the recipients of this news, the shepherds, were not only powerless in the society, 
but they were of the, of the lowliest of the low. I mean, nobody, like, my, like your kids would never aspire to be a shepherd growing up. They didn't hold much social capital in their society. But for some reason, God chooses to herald news of universal significance to these people first. You see, this story tells us something very important about God and the type of kingdom he's ushering in through the birth of Jesus. What this tells us is that Jesus wasn't sent to save all the good people, the righteous people, the ones who deserve God's favor and do away with those who are quote-unquote bad. But the good news is proclaimed to the shepherds because the shepherds fit the mold of who God is looking for when he sent his son. People who are readily aware of their need, their lowliness, their brokenness, their sinfulness. These people didn't need convincing that they needed someone to help them. And this is undeniable because, you know, I love to mention this because you see Jesus running after these types of people to proclaim the news uh, in his ministry. He's constantly proclaiming good news to the prostitutes, the tax collectors, the marginalized, those who have been cast out of families because of disease. And what this means is that this story of the shepherds is actually a preview of what Jesus would do when he began his ministry 30 years later. That he would be a king that did not use his power and his privilege to gather more power or to make himself feel comfortable, but he became known as what? Do you know what his reputation was? That he was what? A drunkard. That he was a glutton. That he ate too much because he hung out with those very people. Okay, let me just show you how crazy the story is. Not only were the shepherds the first to hear the news, but they were also the first ones in Luke's gospel to be shown the glory of God. Okay, look in verse 9. It says that when the angel of the Lord appeared to them, the glory of the Lord shone around them. Okay, I know that doesn't seem like much, but what you have to understand is that this is not supposed to happen. Remember, for 500 years, God's glory had, been, had vacated the temple. And there was promises that he would one day return. But if anybody, if, they, if anybody were to expect or make a guess of where God's glory would return, it would be in the temple. But all of a sudden, God chooses to reveal himself instead to, to people, to these lowly shepherds who were probably freaking out because this was the last thing that they expected. This is a picture of grace. You see, the grace, the favor of God that appeared on Christmas Day, it's not for those who meet the religious requirements or those who live up to the appropriate standards, but it's for those who are lowly, who readily recognize their inherent need and brokenness for God. And this is something we have to get because this is central to the gospel. You know, I mentioned this uh, last year during Advent, but um, if you could put up the genealogy, um, I'm sure none of you guys have really read through this, uh, but when we, this is one of my favorite passages, believe it or not, in all of Scripture. And when you look at the genealogy, it actually backs this claim up, okay? Uh, when you read through Jesus' family tree in Matthew, it's a bit shocking because there are, because there are names in there that should, that were, they should have done everything they can to hide. Because back then, your credibility rested on your genealogy, what line you were from. So you could be the most skilled, you could be the most 
wealthy. But if your line was uh, not from the best line, it would actually rob your credibility from you. And as a new movement, Matthew must have felt the temptation to make Jesus' bloodline look impeccable. But you know, there's always someone in the family tree who went the wrong way, who brought shame upon the family name. And normally, people do whatever they can to hide those things, but Matthew doesn't do it. He shows all the cards. And it even feels like he's emphasizing the people who messed up. And I think one of the reasons is because part of the story that he's trying to communicate is to show who the Messiah came to save. Okay, I I want you to look at who who he includes. First, if you look at the uh, highlighted names, we have Abraham. Okay, I mean, what's wrong with Abraham? I mean, he's the father of faith, of the Jewish faith. But remember the story, do you guys remember the story of Abraham where he lied to Pharaoh that his wife was his sister so that he would not be killed? Okay, I mean, you talk about being a coward, right? And he didn't do that one time. He did that twice, sacrificing his own wife to protect himself. I mean, the wives in here, if your husband did that to you, I don't know if you guys would still be married, right? But he did that twice. Or you, or, you have even Dave, or you have David. I mean, he's supposed to be the greatest king of Israel. And yet he is what? He committed some of the most famous sins. Okay, okay. one of the famous being, uh, he's on the rooftop of the palace when he should have been out in war. If you look at, there's a, actually a detail that says that at the times when kings were out in war, he was on the rooftop. So number one, the first strike, he wasn't leading his people. He wasn't a good leader. And then he's on top being a creeper while you're watching Bathsheba take a bath. And then he sleeps with her, gets her pregnant, and then tricks one of his, uh, her husband, Uriah, who's supposed to be one of his best friends, sends him out into the front of the line to ensure that he gets killed. Okay? I mean, he's not the most spotless leader you could think of, right? He has adultery, lust, murder, laziness, and abuse of power, all in one person. A few more here we see in the genealogy. You have Tamar, if you guys know, in the the later uh, parts of Genesis, uh, where her husband dies, and then she asks her father-in-law to give his youngest son in marriage, which was a tradition back then. But the father-in-law refuses, and so she takes matters into her own hands, dresses up as a prostitute on the street, sleeps with her father-in-law and gets pregnant. Like, this is in the Bible, right? And Matthew does not seem to want to cover it up for the sake of Jesus' reputation. Or, okay, lastly, you have Rahab. She's a sex worker from the story of Jericho. And we could do this with almost every single person on this list. And you know, and you know that Matthew is doing this on person, in, I mean, on purpose, because he names four women in the genealogy, which is a rarity in itself, but he doesn't name the most respected women in Israel, like Sarah, or, uh, who was Abraham's wife, but chooses some of the hardest examples to justify. And the reason for all of this is to point to the wonder of Christmas, that God would preach good news to sinners who deserve bad news, that the glory of God didn't destroy the shepherds, that he didn't come for those who have spotless resumes, but he actually came for those who are in the darkest of sins, that that's who he came for. And this is the wonder of Christmas. And this is important for us to see, okay? And I'll end with this, because this is what it means for us today, uh, here and now. You know, 
you know, I keep mentioning uh, throughout the prayers and all these things um, that we've kind of lost the wonder of Christmas. I mean, if, I mean, if you guys are honest with yourself, it's not, you're not filled with awe and wonder when you think about Christmas. And as I was thinking about this, the only way that you'll truly understand the significance of this grace is if you can genuinely see yourself in these names, and especially the shepherds. If you can identify yourself with their brokenness and their lowliness. Because the advent of grace will only be precious to you if you profoundly sense your need for it. The appearance of a savior will only bring you great joy if you understand that you need to be rescued. And the question is, do you see yourself in the shepherds? Are you shocked, are you in wonder, just like the shepherds, that this good news has been proclaimed to you, a sinner? You see, this is where the wonder of Christmas lies when we recognize that this favor we find in Christ, that the fact that you've gotten a chance to hear the gospel was not deserved, that it wasn't expected, that the coming of Christ is not a given or something that we're entitled to, but it was a sheer demonstration of God's grace for people who deserve something very different. And the question I want you to really think about is, do you see this? Do you sense this in your own heart? And how you answer these questions are very important. And I think there are especially two types of people in this room that actually need to really think about this story. The first, I'm going to probably say 80% of you, there are those of you who have a really hard time identifying yourself with the lowly shepherds. You know, a lot of us, we kind of play this moral game by ourselves, where we you know, we kind of say we're sinners, but truly we don't really identify with that title. And we kind of say things to ourselves like, we all know bad people, but we're not like them. You know, we say things like, I, you know, I do say a white lie here and there. I have a few issues, but I'm not like those people who like murder and steal and do all kinds of crazy things. I'm a pretty good person. And if this is you, let me ask you a question. By what standards are you measuring yourself up to? By what definition do you define good and evil? Because the problem is many of us use the wrong standard to evaluate ourselves with. And this is why we struggle with this type of pride. You see, here's what happens. Instead of using God's laws, you use your own that you subconsciously created to judge yourself. And so you think to yourself that people should be this way or that way, and you feel like you meet those standards, and so you feel good about yourself. Like you would never say that you're perfect, but you're not bad. You're not evil. You're not broken or someone deserving of judgment. And so when good things happen to you, you feel like you deserve it in some ways, even when it comes to things like God's favor and love. And, and this reminds me of a story that I've shared probably, but it has always been helpful for me in dismantling this type of posture that some of us hold to. Um, and it's a story that the great Christian thinker uh, Francis Schaeffer used to tell. He says, suppose, okay, I want you to just kind of imagine this. He says, suppose that each baby is born into this world uh, with an invisible tape recorder around its neck. And these tape recorders are special because they turn on and record every time you make a moral judgment. 
And so it won't record when you say things like, oh, this is beautiful or whatever. But whenever you make a statement like, she's such a gossip, or he's so lazy, or he should have done this, or he shouldn't do this, it turns on and it records. And every day it records for your entire life. And in a story, the, the scene shifts to heaven where all the people are complaining to God. And they say things like, it's not fair for you to use your standards to judge us. I never really studied the Sermon on the Mount. I never really studied the Ten Commandments or all 613 laws in the Old Testament. So God says, okay, let's play your game. Let me put aside my perfect standards, and I will judge you on this. And God proceeds to take out the tape recorders, and he pushes play. And this is what God says. This will be the basis of my judgment. How well have you kept the moral standards you prove that you understood by constantly applying them to those around you? Here you accuse someone of lying, yet have you ever stretched the truth? You were angry at that fellow for being selfish, yet have you ever put your own interests above someone else's needs? And Francis Schaeffer ends the story by saying that every person was silent as the tape recorders were being played because no one can even live up to their own standards. You see, the irony is whether we use God's perfect righteous laws or our own, All the standards condemn you as wicked, as a lawbreaker, as someone who has fallen short and in need of a savior. That you need grace just as much as the the lowly shepherds do, whether you realize it or not. Don't you see, this is the problem of the Pharisees. They couldn't see the common bond that they had with the shepherds, that they were all sinners no matter how good they thought they were. And what this story of the shepherds really tells us is that this grace that arrived on Christmas morning is for the lowly, which is to say it's for every one of us and not just the shepherds because all of us have fallen short of the glory of God. It's just a matter of recognizing it or not. Now, there are others of you uh, who have no problem identifying yourself with the shepherds. But so much so that you have a hard time accepting God's grace, that you don't believe that God can show you favor. You know, especially because we live in a society where it's a meritocracy, and so your heart has been designed to operate based on accomplishments and only deserving things when you have earned them. And so you struggle with these failures that you're carrying in your heart, these mistakes that you've made, this inability to perform religiously, And you feel like God can't genuinely love you. You know, I think a good way to put it is a lot of pastors, they'll say, like, you believe that God loves you, but you don't believe that God likes you, right? That God actually wants to be in relationship and enjoys your presence. Yeah, he might love you like a parent has to love you, but he doesn't want to be with you. But what this story tells us, that, that this is the wonder of Christmas, that Christ came on earth, not because he saw your goodness and he was like, oh man, I need to go and save that person. He actually saw every part of your brokenness, of every sin that you've ever committed and was drawn to that. And so he came in the incarnation to die on the cross so that he might give you life and give it to you freely. Let me share with you one of my favorite uh, quotes. Uh, Frederick Buechner, this is what he says. The gospel is bad news before it is good news. It is the news that man is a sinner, to use the old word, 
that he is evil in the, ima- in the imagination of his heart, that when he looks in the mirror, all in a lather, what he sees is at least eight parts chicken, phony slaw. That is a tragedy. But it is also the news that he is loved anyway, cherished, forgiven. That is the comedy. And this is the wonder of Christmas, that Christ came not based on your performance, but he came to give to you a love that cost him dearly, but that he wants to give you freely. This is what Christmas is all about. Okay, let's pray. Why don't we stand?